You're listening to OEA Grow, a member-led production of the Oregon Education Association. OEA Grow is by members for members. In season four, members discuss back-to-school issues and ideas with Kayla Potter. Hello and welcome. I am Kayla Potter and I am joined today by Rob Hillhouse. In this episode, our veteran educator will be sharing some advice and things they wish they knew when they first started. Hi, Rob. Can you introduce yourself and where you're at, what you do, and how long you've been in the profession? Hi, Kayla. Um, Thank you for having me here. Um, I I guess I've been in education now for 20 years. Um, And right now I'm teaching uh, social science, sixth grade and seventh grade at a middle school in uh, Beaverton, Oregon. Um, but I've kind of been around a little bit in my career. I've taught in Europe and I've taught in Texas and I've taught uh, college level and high school level. And so, um, yeah, yeah, I, I kind of find it hard to believe that I'm here as a veteran educator because I kind of refuse to believe that that's how many <laughs> revolutions around the sun we've gone. But I guess here we are, right? Um, uh definitely uh definitely willing to share uh, my uh reflections and memories and pitfalls yeah and it seems like you have just a wide array of uh, experiences and perspectives to share with us. I'm really excited to hear more from you um so you said you've been in education for 20 years. What was it like back when you first started? What do you remember from your first years of teaching? So um, I'm kind of a funny guy. Like my my first year teaching was actually um, at the college level. Um, I taught um, English as a, as a as a language, right? Um, and I taught that in uh, in Prague in the Czech Republic um, for two years, and it was so it was wonderful in so many ways, but it was also um, it left me with so many questions and so many. Um, scars and so many frustrations because I had flipped straight from being a student at college to being a person in college with an office with a name on the door and teaching classes to college students for which the only qualification I really had was I guess he's from Britain so he probably could teach English and um, it is no yeah it is no uh, uh, um, an underestimate to say that um, a lot of what has been driving me since then um, has been to kind of um, like almost like atonement or penance for the stuff that I didn't know. I, I just didn't know how to teach. Like I, would, I went to college and then um, I applied for a whole bunch of random jobs. And the first one that got back to me was this university in, in Prague. And I was like, sure, let's do it. But I mean, I didn't have training I didn't really have a formal mentoring process um I didn't really have a curriculum or know what I was doing um it was it was it was bad so I I I uh I carry a lot of that with me um my first teaching job in a k-12 school in the United States was uh at the uh international high school in Austin Texas which um, is one of the finest high schools um, in America. Just don't don't even at me. It just is. 
Um, <laughs> and I taught uh, ninth grade and 10th grade social studies there. Um, and that was a school, it's a very unique school because it is uh, only for newcomer uh, refugee and immigrant students who have beginner level of English. So, um, yeah, so it's a really, really um, cool clientele. And uh, I guess that's another example of, like, I look back and I'm like, okay, what? This one's a bit more positive because I can find some things that I did right and some hunches mm-hmm. that I double down on. Um, but there was also a lot of things where I was like, oh, good grief, good grief. Like, um, these were mistakes that you made. And so I'm really hoping that um, this this is an opportunity for me to kind of uh, continue my penance tour of uh, my, my memories. Well, we really appreciate you sharing. Were there any things that you did within those first few years that really carried with you as you progressed through your career? Um, abs- yeah, abso- absolutely. Um, so much, so much um, learning happened that changed me at the international high school. Um, and I, 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 one of the things I distinctly remember is um, building community with the students on my very first week uh, with them, where I said, "You're immigrants, and I'm an immigrant. We're all immigrants together." And it's like, well, now, now I can say that there is a substantial difference between being an, uh, an, a white male immigrant from a European English-speaking country. Um, and, you know, someone who was evacuated to the United States because their parents and their family were at risk of of being murdered in their home country. That's not quite the same, you're an immigrant and I'm an immigrant. There's uh, it's a more nuanced conversation. I didn't realize that at the time. Um, and I think it, it comes back to, like, it comes back to, like, that, that, that thing where, like, show rather than tell, right? Like... Um, instead of like telling the kids that you're an ally in some way, like the, the kids aren't going to believe that without context. So you need to show them and show them again and again and again. And then they're like, okay, this is a person that I can trust that kind of gets it on some level. Yeah. Yeah. Um, prove it to them. Yeah. Yeah. I think another example, um, would be from my, uh, very first, um, back to school night. And I didn't speak any Spanish at the time. Uh, I I'm still speak very little Spanish, but um, at that time I spoke really zero Spanish. And I was talking to the mom of uh, a girl that I taught, a ninth grader. Um, and mom was, I could tell the mom was like asking me about her her daughter. And I, I, I didn't know exactly what she was asking me. So luckily I got my, my principal at the time helped me out. Uh, the principal at the time was um, Annabel Garza, who's one like, statewide awards in Texas for her social justice advocacy, phenomenal leader. Um, And she was able to translate for me. And what mom was asking me was really the question that that every parent's asking, right? Like mom was asking like, how is my kid? Like, what can you tell me? How are are they doing? Um, But it had a deeper resonance than I understood because this was a situation where mom uh, mom had been in Texas for a while and had been saving up money to pay for uh, as safe a passage as she could for her two daughters, uh, to pay a coyote, to have uh, her two daughters brought to her in Texas. So it wasn't just like, hey, what can you tell me about my kid? It was a genuine, what can you tell me about this kid? Because it had been over a decade 
since they'd seen each other. And so, um, yeah, I had like a, a pretty big learning curve in terms of um, making assumptions and then kind of seeing more of the world as it really is um, mm-hmm. in that first year. Wouldn't have changed it for the world, though. Wow. I'm just taking that all in right now, personally. That's such a important thing to remember that we can't just assume we understand where a kid or a family is coming from, especially when there um, lots of other outside things going on in their lives. I know I'm victim of that one too. I, I personally have sometimes made assumptions where I think this is what they're talking about, what's going on, but that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. And I, I take it, I take it back to cultural universal, right? Like your your listeners might have different opinions on the validity of national borders and other kinds of borders, right? That's not the purpose of this podcast. But I think we can all, whatever we believe in and the status of borders, I think we can all agree um, that nothing is going to stop a mom from doing the best thing for her kids. And so that was a case of what came out here. Now, um, knowing that all oh, this is going on, like here's a really here's a really clear example of like a goof I made in my first year um, um, teaching um, where I was doing a lesson on a geography lesson on uh, different levels of uh, wealth and what that might look like and kind of like social class and how we might group people into social cl- different social classes. And this was actually, <laughs> this was actually a lesson that I was so confident on in this lesson that um, this was, I'd said to my assistant principal, like, this is it. You can come and evaluate me here. I mean, this is Texas. So your, your admin evaluations count for a really big, it's a really high stakes thing in Texas, um, yeah. right? Because um, if they don't like mm-hmm. you, you know, you don't have as, the union protections in the same way. Um, and so, yeah, I asked the assistant principal to come and look at this lesson because I knew I was onto a winner. Um, and what he saw, and what he saw was what actually, he came in with a different lens. Um, he noticed that my slideshow showing people with different levels of wealth that I was having the kids like reflect on or write about, um, all of the examples of people that were, you know, struggling, people that were lower socioeconomic, I mean, and this were global examples, right, from around the world, mm-hmm. but they were all people of color. And all of the folks that were doing, uh, you know, were, were, were doing better in comparison in my slideshow that were higher SES, we're all white. So um, I hadn't realized that when I put it together. Um, And the assistant principal kind of met with me in my plan period and he sat down and he said, okay, and this is in 2005. Um, He sat me down and he was like, okay, have you ever heard of critical race theory? And like right now, that's one of those buzzwords that's get used to mean it's been warped out of all it's a, proportion. It's a hot topic, that one. Yep. It's a hot topic. But also also like it was a perfect opening for me because had I meant to get out of bed as a first year teacher and do a racism? No. But was there an impact that 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 happened there and yeah maybe there was and it was was that what I intended god no um and so um being able to have those kind of um lenses to kind of uh um not just like I'm a teacher what the lesson I'm making is perfect end of story but to actually be able to do some like quality control on the product that I'm making is actually really 
uh, is actually really helpful. And so that was the first time where I kind of got the idea of, or I kind of had the experience of someone who was further along the line than me, um, assisting me to get better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the intention versus impact can have very different things. And I personally believe that the impact is more important than that intention. And if you go back and you fix the error, or you reteach the lesson or you change it so it's um, better, then yeah, that's great. So it sounds like there were some times in your career that were really joyful, I'm assuming, and that um, there were some that were a little harder. Um, It seems like mentors are something that you use to navigate some of those tougher times. You reached out to people that were a little further along. Were there any other things that you did to navigate any tough situations? Well, I think I think if we can kind of pick up what what you what you laid out there about mentors, like I, oh yeah, I feel like mentors are just so important as a first year teacher. Um, to the point where, like, if you're being hired by a district and they're not able at the, in- at the interview to explain how they're supporting you, not just for one year, but multi-years, um, like, to me, that's a red flag. That's a red flag because um, do they think that you're a replaceable part? Like, no, you're a beautiful and perfect human that's going to be part of a, a, a complicated ecosystem doing a really hard job. And you can't do it yourself. You need to do it with the support of other people. And so, like, what's the plan for that? Um, and I will say that um, when I was hired on in, in Austin, as my first year teaching in the U.S., um, I didn't have a mentor, but thank God I had so many people that, in diff- like that assistant principal, uh, um, uh, Dr. Kramer, who um, were able to step up and guide me in different, in different ways. Um, but um, the, way that I, the way that I would sell uh, mentoring to a new teacher is this it's like therapy for your work the ability to and i'm as we established at the outset right like i'm i'm heading over the hill i'm a 20-year educator right but uh i this is the second week of our school year and i met with our building uh instructional coach um maybe three times already because i have stuff that i know i need to work on that i want to get better with um, and, you know, they have met with me, we've brainstormed stuff. Um, it is not a sign of weakness, um, far from it to be able to kind of lay out, um, what you're, what you're excited about doing in your classroom, um, things that you are curious about or nervous about, and then have a peer, um, actually kind of listen and hold space for you to think it through or to even offer um, some solutions. Although I personally think it's always better when they hold space because um, just the act of having a, 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 a considerate listener to you, often when you're voicing your problem, you can stumble across your own solution in the moment. Um, you can't do that by yourself. So uh, yeah, I would say I would say purely for the workplace mental benefits alone, mental health benefits alone, like get yourself, get yourself a mentor, get yourself in a district where they're offering that kind of support. Yeah. And then one of the things I like to recommend to folks who are going into interviews, if they don't mention anything about a mentor program or access to a mentor through your interview, that one of those exit questions could be, 
how does your district mentor newer educators or support educators that are already in the profession and creating PLCs? Um, and then one thing that I ended up doing during my second year is I had to advocate for myself to get a mentor. And, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't hurt to just ask for it either. Um, and so my district was able to do that for me. Yeah, I mean, in um, I've both been a mentor I've been a, a building level mentor. I've been a lead mentor in my building. I've received mentoring. I've looked at it from all different angles and in multiple districts. It's just super helpful. I mean, one time I had, one time I had uh, a teacher come into my room and just all they did had a, they had a map, a blank map of my seat layout, and all they did was track how much attention was I giving to male male presenting students versus female presenting students and did it feel balanced or not and it revealed uh and it revealed an, an imbalance right that male presenting students were getting more of my attention right so knowing that okay instructionally what are you going to do like it's okay i think to have a tilt but it's not okay implicit bias it. is there it's why it's implicit exactly yeah. but it's not okay to be like, oh, that's just me. That's just how I am. You know, no, no, no. You know, you have a tilt, right? And again, it's all about quality control. So like, uh, you know, what is a system you can bring into place that will address that tilt, right? And so, um, you know, I went down a a path more of um, students generating answers in collaboration, more randomization, that kind of stuff. But that whole conversation wouldn't have happened if uh, another teacher hadn't been prepared to kind of act in a hunch I had, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, having someone else come in, they often see the things that you overlook. Yeah. yeah. In an earlier episode, I spoke with an early career educator, Malik White, and he talked about teacher authenticity. What are your views on being your authentic self in the classroom? And do you find that helps motivate students? Uh, yeah, I, I've, I teach middle school. I teach sixth graders and seventh graders. And anytime that you open up and you uh, and you show a part of your your real your real life. Um, there's an excitement there, like the kids feel like they're getting a window into your world. Um, and also, like uh, the more the more examples we can provide the kids of adults doing adulting stuff, the better, right? Because that looks different for everyone. Um, and one thing that I've started to do this year, and I, not my idea, I got it from Twitter, which, by the way, that is a great source of uh, educator PD and drama, and drama, uh, <laughs> the great. but um, I, I don't, I've forgotten the person's name, but they had this really great idea of having the students uh, start class by making a dedication. So, oh, interesting, um, tell me more. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting. So, um, I've been taking the lead on it this week. So like every every day I've been doing a dedication. So like one was like my cat, one was my uh, oldest daughter, one was my uh, young sister, my, my younger sister. And so like explaining like, why is this person like or thing so important, so amazing to me, so unique and so special that I want to dedicate our class um, to this, to you know, to this person or thing. Um, and it only takes like a minute or two minutes. Um, and I shared a template with the kids. And so the kids have started, as of yesterday, the kids have started doing their own dedications and they are taking it surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, really, really seriously. Um, uh, there are dedications coming up that are like, you know, cats, dogs, 
someone's dedicating to football, someone's dedicating to pasta, someone is dedicating to um, a specific Indian tribe, um, someone's dedicating to Hedy Lamar, who is credited with um, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth um, discoveries and was also an actress. Um, kids are dedicating to uh, parents, um, other folks, uh, and it kind of is a practical way to it's a practical way to to do something that I'm really committed to, which is uh, establish empathy as much as I can, uh, as broadly as I can, as frequently as I can, because I don't think that kids organically bounce into your room. Uh, maybe this is a middle school thing. But I don't think kids organically <laughs> bounce into your room as fully rounded, empathically sensitive people. Um, and so having opportunities where they can see uh, into windows into other people's lives, uh, they can make connections. Um, here's, another, here's another very funny example from my classroom, right? Funny, strange, perhaps. Um, I have a number of plants in my classroom. And I have these little wooden uh, name tags. And this is a thing we do a couple of times a year. Whenever I get a new plant, the kids get to name it. So when they come to class, there's a, a, a form they complete and they suggest names, right? And then I'll go home and I'll look at the names and I'll choose the top 10 that I think will work. You know, Obviously, there's all kinds of stuff in there. Um, mm-hmm. So I choose, I curate the top 10. Um, and then the next day they come in and they get to vote. Like, what one do what one do they want? Um, and so right now we have this cactus, and uh, we're I'll have to check I'll have to check what it is. But it was neck and neck between Kanye and Shrek. That were the two. That <laughs> for. But like, and it sounds so it sounds so small and so stupid. But like, my kids come to a classroom where they've played a part in naming the plants, and it sounds like such a small thing. But like. Um, it's a little bit of ownership. Too. It's a little bit of ownership, and they're bizarrely excited about it. Like they're really excited. Vote for Kanye. Vote for Kanye. Like you know what I mean? They're like they're into it. Um, and and I guess I guess where I'm going with this, with like be your authentic self, is uh, everyone talks about classroom climate, and everyone talks about it as something that just like oh this person has it or this person doesn't have it. Well, everyone's got a classroom climate, right? Let's establish that. But like as a social studies teacher, right, we know we know that a, a climate is the aggregate of daily weather. So, it doesn't do any good to say like, oh, you should have, you know, a better classroom climate or, you know, you should blah 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 because it's the aggregate of the daily weather. So, your climate is the sum of the weather that was in your classroom in each of your classes or every single day and that's your climate and that's your climate so even though it sounds really stupid that like oh we have this thing where like they name a plant that's a positive uh that's a nice day of weather that over time when you zoom out builds into a sense of climate that the kids associate with your space right and there's lots of other things you can do like taking the time to you know, make sure you're getting a kid's name right. Or if a kid is experimenting with different names, being current with their names on your seating chart. There's lots of things you can do that add up to the, that create positive daily weather that adds up to a classroom climate that makes it that you are happy to come to school. Yeah. I, don't, I also think that, you know, kids will 
participate more and will be more engaged if they know a little bit more about you and you know a little bit more about them. And I love the part of them being able to name a plant in your room, which does seem like something really small, but they're going to be able to come back to that and say, I helped name that. And years from now when they, you know, middle school, (laughs) they might not necessarily remember the content, but they're going to remember you and they're going to remember naming that plant and the way that you made them feel in that class and how they felt like they belonged. And here's, here's something, here's something that happened. Here's something that happened, uh, uh, literally just an hour ago. Um, um, (laughs) I, I got this cactus that is voraciously making baby cactuses so I can't get pots <laughs> um, but um, I have some and they have names and they're in the hallway just outside my classroom and I, last week a kid I think one of the new sixth graders um, uh, like broke the plant in two so smaller plant and it kind of got broken in two and a kid came by who I teach who you know is uh, you know, a kind of a character, right? Let's we know this is an education podcast. The kid's a character, <laughs> um, and he came by and he was like, "What happened?" And he wasn't talking to me; he was talking to the plant. The plant had a name, and he was talking to the plant. And he, and he turned around and said to me, "Well, what what happened?" And I said, "Well, I think it must have been someone didn't realize its significance that they accidentally broke it." But don't worry; these plants are these plants are tough. And then he turned around and he was like talking to the plant, and he was like, "Okay, you're gonna you're gonna make it. You're gonna make it. You're gonna make it." And then he wandered off down the hallway. So like, <laughs> so like, you know, um, these little interactions are kind of fun. When I talk about empathy, like these are like great examples of what. There's some empathy the right there. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And a kid and a kid that um, in some circumstances might not get the fairest of shakes, but he's in my hallway, like with no one else around to, to notice. I don't think he even knew I was listening. Um, you know, and he was spurring on something that had been harmed, you know, to, to hang in there. Like, uh, this is, this is, this is what I'm talking about when I'm saying like, um, the importance of empathy and in the daily weather and then the, and then the climate and, uh, yeah. And also when you have a as an educator, you got to take these little things and be like, you know what, that was the good thing that happened today. Yeah, it's really easy to remember those big moments that are hard. Yeah. It's harder to remember those little moments that are beautiful. And and what I would say to any new educator that's listening to this, I would say that you need to go to Target or wherever and you need to buy yourself a blue folder, right? Uh, a blue binder. And at the side of the binder, what you write on it is two words, code blue, code blue. And any time that you feel that you are ground into the dirt, that why am I in this? What um, I'm a bad teacher. This is blah, blah, blah. all of this negative self-talk that we do to ourselves. You get into that code blue because that's where you've kept every freaking thing. That email from a parent that was like, "Oh, thank you for you know helping my kid, you know, pack their lunchbox." You print it up. That goes in there. Okay, hard copy. Any card you get from a kid that goes in there. Hard copy. Um, any little kind of um, post-it note. Mine has little weird sketches in it that kids did of me that I think maybe they were being borderline rude, but like I still interpret that as a sign of a sign of meaningfulness. And so those are those are in there too. So like I have anytime you feel like um, uh, that you're making a rod to beat your own back with in this profession, this hardest of all professions profession, get your code blue out and remind yourself 
that you are a powerful, graceful, authentic um, human being who has made a connection and has made a difference. I love that. I've done a smile file before with little notes and things each year, but I haven't done a compiled binder throughout my career of like things that I've held on to. I really like that idea. I want to be able to do that starting this year moving forward. If we had the classroom fire, it, it's I, hard it's, I would and grab it. it. Um, burnout is a real thing, especially in your first three years. And if that code blue binder is what you need to help you through it, then I think that's a great tool to have. Yeah, yeah. And I think and I think talking about burnout, because that goes back to the question of insisting on a quality vision of mentoring in your in your role, uh, in your in your in your district. But like burnout is real, but like differentiate between like what you're putting on yourself and what other people are putting on you. Because one of the things I really appreciate about moving to Oregon is uh, the upgrade in union strength com- uh, compared to t- teaching in Texas. Like Texas has, love Texas to PCs, love y'all down there in Texas. But um, um, you cross the border into Oregon and your back stiffens because, you know, you've got union power in a way that you just don't have down there. Sorry to say. Um, and so, like, um, knowing knowing that you have an organization you can go to where you have representatives that you can check in and say, is this right? Like, I'm feeling really burned out. Like, we have this meeting and then we have this meeting and then I'm losing my plan time. Is this right? That you ha- can have those conversations in Oregon in a way that you can't in some other uh, states. Um, like, that's really powerful. So, like, tease it out. Like, you're feeling the burnout. How much of it is within your locus of control? Um, and where do you see things that you can be like, mm, I don't know if this is quite right, like, uh, and follow up on that. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate you sharing that piece. I think that's important, too, to remember that you're not in charge of everything. You you have your small piece, and then there's lots of other things that are put onto you, and what can you focus on, and where can we ask for help, and, uh, you know, giving up your prep period who can help you with not having that happen yeah yeah and then going to people again going to people as a new educator going to people is not a sign of weakness in actual fact it's the reverse if you hermit yourself in your room um that's that's the weak move i mean um you know you go to your building this person is in charge of the electronic you know um grading system this per- they can help you out with that this person is the building coach this person is uh, you know, the person that's in charge of the education, the online education platform system, like they're getting stipends for that stuff. You know what I mean? And they got chosen because they're they, they're good at it and they're good at working with teachers on it. So so don't sit there, you know, like a potato blaming yourself because you can't, you know, because you can't understand like how to set up your page in Canvas or whatever. There's people in the building you can go to and get them get them to really help you and to really show you like those people are are there for you. And so taking advantage of your resources that you have like that is really, really huge. And then also having that person to just listen. Um, I was guilty of that. My first year teaching, I, uh, it was rough and I would sit at my computer at the end of the day and I would cry and I'd be like, okay, Kayla, like, what are you going to do to fix this? And it took me a while to realize that reaching out to other people in my building or talking to my team or my union reps was really what I needed in order to feel okay and move forward. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and as a, and as a first year educator, um, um, stepping into other teachers classes to see what's going on. 
Um, I had a kid that I was really, I, I, it was a really bad connection I was making with this kid. And I could not, for the life of me, make a positive connection to the point where I was just like, well, that's what that kid's like. Um, and then uh, I, I got to step into a math classroom and he was in the math classroom. And it was like, this kid was like the star of the class. So it wasn't that, oh my gosh, there's something up with the kid. It was, it was more um, me-centered than that. I had some work to do. And I wouldn't have seen that if I hadn't been able, I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes sort of thing. So like learning from other educators is really important. And getting your head into those classrooms and seeing what's going on um, is a valuable use of your time. Yeah, even if you can just pop in for a couple of minutes, I agree. Yeah, because uh, because it's a win-win. Like you walk in there and, uh, you know, you see something and you're like, oh, I can use that in my class. I can do that. Or you walk in there and it's kind of like organized chaos, which is kind of what my classrooms look like today. And you're like, oh, this is not such a different vibe from my room. Like my classrooms organize chaos too. And it, it's like that sometimes. So like, again, opening your... Uh, opening your mind a little bit so that you're not like being stuck in your room thinking that you're doing it all wrong and that everything else is, you know, just perfect and there's something wrong with you. Cause that's not true. Yeah. And that's really important to remember. It, it's not true. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I still have to remind myself that sometimes yeah. um, we're all in it together, all going through kind of the same things. But if you're in your own space and you're not leaving it, it can feel really isolating and it can feel like it's just you experiencing that. Yeah. When reality, it's not. Yeah. Um, is there anything that you wished you knew during your first year that you now know now? <laughs> yes. And well, there's a bunch. But I think, I think something to think about is... Uh, Something to think about is how you're organizing what the kids are doing in your classroom. And again, I'm coming at this from a secondary lens. It might be different in elementary. But like when I, when I first started um, teaching at the international high school, I would do things like, well, I had the kids do a think-pair-share yesterday. So I, I can't really, I don't want to do another think-pair-share today. You know, kind of like you're like, well, like I had Thai food for dinner last night. I don't know if I want to have Thai food again tonight well um, guess what there's an entire country called thailand where people are doing very well eating thai food multiple times a day <laughs> and here's the deal um it took me lots absurdly a long amount of time um to wrap my head around this but um as a uh, figure out figure out tasks that are meaningful and that um carry the kids through to the learning that you want them to have and don't do different tasks every day. Like I, I have maybe like a dozen tasks that I use as an educator that are when I'm planning lessons, when I'm planning units that I, I bring to bear. Um, and, and because you're giving the kids new content and it's really, really hard on the kids when they're learning new content and no, we're not doing nothing for sure. We're doing this other structure. So wait, wait, what? How is this? So how do I do this? And then, but I'm reading this and this is new, but I'm also showing you how I know it in a different way. Like it is so much easier for everyone. If you can commit to doing really quality tasks, um, a limited number of them and commit to getting them right. Like maybe as a first year teacher, like maybe, maybe that's what, uh, maybe that's uh 
maybe that's your goal. Like maybe you say to your admin, you know what, by the end of my first year, I want all my students um, to be uh, really doing excellent think pair shares when I ask them to. That is a very laudable and legitimate goal for a first year educator. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so I would say steer away from task novelty and the feeling that every lesson has to be something different, something flashy, like you're organizing like a birthday party every single day and it has to be a different menu and a different activities. No, um, figure out the strategies, be super critical, figure out the strategies that work with your teaching style that bear the weight of what you're trying to study and uh, use those strategies again and again um, because it frees up everyone's mental uh, space um, and you can get through stuff um, faster. Yeah, I totally agree with that one. When you teach those structures to them, and I like to teach those structures to them during those first couple of weeks where it's a little bit more fun, get to know you. And then when we use it for content and learning, they're already familiar with it. They already know kind of what they're going to be doing or the expectations, and it makes it easier to focus on whatever the new learning is going to be rather than how are we sharing our learning. Yeah, yeah. it, it makes yeah. things a little bit less um, anxious. Yeah, and I think all of our kids could use that right now. <laughs> it's a little less stress. Indeed. Um, so you've shared a lot of really great advice throughout this podcast so far. Is there any other advice you'd give to a first-year educator or someone within their first few years that you haven't shared yet? Uh, I would say I, I would say don't write off don't write off kids. Um, I would say. Uh, again, if I can come back to if I can come back to um, international high school, I remember I had a kid who um, <laughs> was added to my classroom halfway through the year, um, and all I knew was this kid came from Honduras, and um, and I gave him uh, one of those Nystrom atlases of the world, and I turned to the page where it's literally Central America and North America, right? Like it's literally that's all that's there. And I was like, okay, dude, can you show me where United States is? It's not hard, right? That takes up like 20% of the total space on the page, but it's not hard. But show me where show me where United States is. He couldn't show me where United States was, right? Uh, and then I was like, okay, well, I know you're from Honduras, so show me on show me on your on this map. Like point your finger, where is Honduras? And he couldn't show me where Honduras was, right? And and I remember I was going home and I was like, my God. I, these kids are taking a middle-of-the-year benchmark in a couple of weeks' time. He's going to be assessed on geography in a language that he doesn't speak. And he doesn't know where his country is, and he doesn't know the country that he's in right now. And I'm like, how? This kid knows nothing about geography. And I got home, and I kind of perseverated on it. And then I had the realization that... Um, that this is a student who had traveled unaccompanied um, by foot and by hitching a ride on trains from his home country all the way to my classroom, right, in Austin, Texas. And instead of me being like, this kid is never going to pass geography, I should have, I should have given him the, the world geography credit right there and then. Because I can go to my local supermarket and wander around lost like a buffoon and this kid on his own steam crossed halfway across a continent. So um, that flipping my mindset there made me see that this was a kid who uh, had experiences and skills that uh, 
I could build on, right? And at the end of that year, I transitioned into a district level um, instructional support position. But had I been back in the classroom and had I been doing world geography, I had resolved that I was going to use uh, Enrique's Journey by Sonia Nazario. And I was going to use that as the framework for teaching an entire semester of world geography. So we would all take that journey and learn about the geography from a Central American country all the way through the train journey and up into Austin, Texas. Um, so I never got a chance to get that off the ground because I moved into a district office. But had I stayed in that position, switching my negative mindset into seeing the assets in the case of this kid would have resulted in a massive instructional change that all of my students would have experienced, right? So, um, so just, you know, step back and reflect and breathe. Yeah. That sounds like an awesome project. What a great way to make geography real and tangible and useful and not just something that you have to learn. You have a lot of really great stories. I could listen to you share these all day. There's This is just me personally telling you like that you've got some real interesting things that you've done and have taught with kids and So I've been greatly privileged. I said at the start that International High School was the best school the best high school in America. Mm -hmm. I wasn't, and I wasn't lying. Imagine a school where all the kids have stories similar to this, right? It's a phenomenal place to work. So uh, um, I I think it's really important for me to say, as we're coming to the end of this, that some of these stories that I've shared um, are stories that have prompted improvement in me, self-improvement in multiple regards, right, as a person and as a teacher. Um, But I want to share that these are are stories from kids of color that um, are not really truly mine to share. Like I'm sharing them for this audience for the purpose of the genre of the piece that we're doing. But the name of the game isn't for me to kind of like uh, um, get energy from passing on these stories. Um, The name of the game is to educate the kids so that they can tell their own dang stories and they can make things better on their own terms. And so when all is said and done, I think it's important to kind of um, um, circle back into that and center it on the students. I appreciate you adding that. Thank you. Uh, before we go, is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners? Just, um, just um, you are doing uh, one of the hardest jobs in in the United States at one of the hardest times. Um, and just you know, thank you for uh, thank you for stepping up and 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 for doing that. Um, you're making huge impacts. I'd also add, uh, take your sick and personal days. They're there for a reason. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Rob, for sharing your perspectives with us. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, And until next time, OEA, goodbye. For more OEA professional learning opportunities, visit our webpage at grow.oregoned.org.